0: Well, we did finish up last week our beautiful design series. Anybody remember that? Mercifully, it's over. Right? Thank gosh, it's over. Uh, I'm really excited because we're going to be starting a new series today on uh, the Book of Ruth. We'll probably be in this uh, book the about seven weeks. So, Paul, podcast or nothing for you, buddy. Um, I love the Old Testament, and uh, let me tell you why I like the Old Testament. It's actual real stories of real people and real life and real circumstances and real issues and real problems. And uh, in those real things that are discussed, there's a lot of God stuff that gets displayed uh, in ways, I think, that make it easier for us human beings to understand than some of the, if you will, the doctrinal stuff that's in the New Testament. See, uh, I think we could probably have a a great theological lecture on uh, God's forgiveness for people who don't deserve it. Uh, And and that would be a wonderful and a very true doctrine that we are talking about. But I think it actually comes alive more real to us when we see it displayed in sort of Old Testament stories like of Joseph, right? Joseph, the guy that's hated by his brothers, uh, sold into slavery by them, and then goes through horrible event after horrible event. And and I don't know if you're like most people, your anger kind of grows as, as that story goes on and the calamity keeps falling on this guy. Your anger grows at his brothers, and, and you want so much for them to get what's coming to them in the end. So you keep you keep reading the story because you're expecting that to happen, but then we, we watch things turn completely around down there in Egypt where Joseph is. He rises to become the prime minister of all Egypt, uh, and then his brothers, thinking he's probably long dead, uh, haven't seen him for years, they actually told his dad that his brother, his brother, their brother was killed by wild beasts and stuff, so he's long gone, right? But they have to go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land where they are, and they have to go down there and beg for food because under Joseph's watch, they've got seven years of grain stored up. And, uh, and so you see the thing unfold, right? In the big prime minister's office, the big cathedral, wherever it is, and Joseph has them right where he wants them, and frankly, right where we want them. They're, they're going to go down, finally, right? They're going to get what's coming to them, and then, boom, out of nowhere, left field, there it is. Forgiveness shows up, and Joseph lovingly turns to his brothers and forgives them and gives them something they don't deserve. And before it's over, the camera kind of begins to pan out, and we, and we see this sort of master plan of God in a way we never saw, never expected, never anticipated, that God has just used this Joseph to save the lives of these brothers who will ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel and through whom he will use that nation and those tribes to send a Messiah named Jesus who would actually forgive all of us and make possible for us to be saved. And I think it all brings that kind of home to us in a, in a way that maybe a story in a textbook couldn't do or a lecture So we're going to actually experience a lot of this as we go through the book of Ruth. Um, I think some rich practical truths about God um, and us that God has placed in this amazing account with, I think, everything a great epic story needs, right? Complex characters set in really troubled times, gut-wrenching tragedy, uh, heartache, loss, challenges, tough decisions with massive consequences, courage, anger, hopelessness, Plot twists, and for those of you who are romantics, to woo love. <laughs> Let me just pray for us and we'll get started. God, thank you for these people. Thanks for this place we have to meet. Uh, thanks for a soundboard that hopefully can be fixed and recovered. Um, we love you. We love what you're doing. Thanks for even this little kind of campfire gathering here today. Um, it's not all, about, not all about big sound and big band stuff about you and us, what you're trying to tell us, what you're trying to do, and listen through us. So we ask that you would descend on us, that you would make us kind of malleable today, a little bit, a little bit open to you, a little bit maybe more so than normal. To hear what you have to say. To touch us in a way maybe we didn't expect this morning. Change us in a way we didn't anticipate. In Christ's name, amen. Ruth chapter 1. Verse 1, it's the 8th book of the Bible, if you're kind of wondering where it is, right after the book of Judges, and it says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So like with this sign that's up here next, you kind of wonder about the context for the book of Ruth. I saw this sign, I'm wondering about the context for this sign, like uh, how long ago was it when the cows fell off the mountains onto the cars, <laughs> and and how often did this happened that caused it to be a sign, because you don't put a sign up unless there's lots of accidents and deaths and that kind of stuff, right? No no stop sign goes up until there's five people dead, right? right. Thankfully, in our text, we do have some context. Uh, we get some context. This is in the days when the judges ruled, and it describes a period of time at 250 to 300 years after the death of Joshua. You remember Joshua, uh, God led Moses to lead the people out of of Egypt and then they wandered into wilderness for 40 years because they were disobedient until all the original cast died. And the next generation comes up and God chooses Joshua to lead the people into this promised land. And uh, after his death, it seems that people just kind of fell away. It's kind of described as people just did whatever they wanted to do, whatever was on their own hearts to do. They just decided what they wanted to do, forget God, and they began to worship uh, Canaanite gods. They were supposed to actually kick all the people out, but they didn't actually do that completely. So there were still remnants of the old the old nations who worshiped these weird gods and did all these kind of wacky things uh, in, in, in honor of their gods. Uh, and what would happen is that Israel would kind of go through these processes of kind of up and down and up and down. They kind of fall away from God. And then when their wickedness would reach a certain level, God would send one of the neighboring Countries in, or a famine, and just beat the heck out of uh, the Israelites. Uh, and eventually, what would happen is things would get so bad. Yeah, <laughs> things would get so bad that the people, like the guy on the next slide, would would look up because they didn't have any place else to look. I, I don't know if this guy on the slide looked up, but I know that in the time of Israel, God would raise up a judge, a leader, uh, kind of not like a judge in our day and age, but a kind of a, a religious political military guy, and they and would raise those guys up, and they would, they, would, they would defeat the oppressors. And so this cycle of, of sin and then judgment being brought by God, and then man getting things so bad that it was just awful, they would repent, and then God would send a rescuer. And that happened about 12 times. That cycle happened about 12 times over this 250 to 300-year period. And based on the genealogy that we see at the end of Ruth when we get there, Uh, We're going to figure that this account of Ruth happened somewhere in the last 50 to 100 years of that 300-year period. So we got some context for this. So when we are told here, as we open this book, that a famine has come on the land, uh, we know that it's because of God's judgment. Because God had promised, as he established the country back in Deuteronomy, you can read it for yourself, chapters 27 and 28, that if the people remained faithful, if they they kept uh, him as their God and, and, and the relationship with him was right, that he would ensure that the nation got crops and and rain and food. And then when they were disobedient, God promised he would turn the spigot off. So a famine is a time of judgment on Israel. And of course, what the judgment is intended to do is what? I mean, yeah, get the people to recognize that they have departed from the course. They're off track to recognize their sin, to confess it, to repent of it, and then to turn back to God. And so what we see in this context is now we're going to kind of bore down into the weeds a little bit, into one particular family, to see how it chooses to respond to this judgment that God has sent Israel's way because of sin. And let's let's just see if it's repentance or or something else. It says this, And a man of Bethlehem, In Judah, you heard of Bethlehem, okay. The man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. So I I think you just draw a big oops in your Bible right about here. Oops. Not repentance, not confession, not turning back to God. Just a really, really bad idea. Uh, Even in the names of the people we just read, uh, we see something of the relationship God expected to have, wanted to have with his, his people. Bethlehem translates as, anybody know? House of bread. Elimelech translates as, my God is king. And Naomi translates in Hebrew as pleasant. See, this is how things were supposed to be. Instead, there's no bread. And if there's a king, it isn't God for Elimelech. And everything has ended up, not pleasant, but miserable. But hey, you know, even though we've seen for 200, maybe 250 years, how this cycle goes, we've seen it go up and down, up and down, up and down. If we just repent and turn back to God, things get better. God sends a rescuer. God steps in. He saves us. Even though we know that to be the case from nine or ten other cycles, we're not going to do that. We're going to leave the land that God has given us and promise us to 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 prosper on. We're going to find our own way out of this mess. Hey, we hear there's food in Moab, it's to cross the river. And off they go. And like most horrible decisions, it seemed like such a good idea at the time. But it turns out to have been a road to nowhere. Moab was known for a lot of things, Uh, none of them good. Remember Lot, Abraham Lot, Lot, Abraham called out of the land of Ur. God sends him to this place he was going to show him, but didn't tell him where it is. And he gets there, it's the promised land. It's, it is the promised land. And you remember Lot went with him, his nephew. And Lot landed in a place you, you may, may have heard of, Sodom. Ring a bell. Lot decided to kind of camp out there. And when God destroyed Sodom, Lot and his two daughters were the only ones that survived. They flee. They end up in a cave. And thanks to incest, what that is, with his older daughter, Lot has a son. And his daughter names it Moab, which means child of my father. So there's a constant reminder. Oh, kid, born of incest. Hey, there's Moab, incest, incest. (laughs) What a bad name to kid. The The Moabites are actually distant relatives of the Jews and incestuous relatives. They despised each other. Uh, Their king once hired a prophet uh, named Balaam to curse the Israelites when God actually drew the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, As Israelites wandered in the wilderness, the Moabite women snuck in and seduced the Israelite men and encouraged them to worship their gods. Um, Moabites had actually been one of the countries that had oppressed the Israelites during one of the periods of judgment. So the Moabites hated Israel, and the feeling was mutual, I'm sure. God declared in the book of Deuteronomy that no Moabite could enter the congregation of Israel. They were uh, banned from being a part of Israel. They couldn't come in and be buddies to the 10th generation. They were considered outcasts. No mingling, no socializing, no parties, no intermarrying, no contact was the order. So Elimelech decides to go to Moab. Does this sound like a really great idea of a place to, to, to raise your godly children? Speaking of children... And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were epithets from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Anybody been to baby dedications ever? The church? I've I've done a few, been to a lot. I don't ever remember dedicating a baby named Malon or Chilion. I wonder why that is. Maybe it has something to do with what their names mean. (laughs) Malon is Hebrew for puny. How how bad would you have to hate your kid? The name Peewee, Puny. The other one's name is Longing or Pining. So things were not working out too well. These kids were reminders of, man, these are dark days. So let's see how Elimelech's plan works out. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So Elimelech, the one who chose to move to Moab, took his family there, he's gone. So as the head of the household now, the matriarch, what will Naomi do? Do, Will she choose to repent, to go back home to God, or or to stay? We can't wait to find out. So we have to look at verse 4. It says these. They used to come with the two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So she chose to stay. And then the disobedience gets worse. Even though God's word in Deuteronomy 7 had specifically forbidden it, those boys married Moabite women. One has the name of a famous talk show host, well, sort of. <laughs> Oprah, Oprah Winfrey's family, when the, they, she was born, they wanted a biblical name. So they went to Oprah's aunt and said, would you choose the name for us? So she goes in the Bible and chooses Orpah. And once you hear the story of Orpa, you're going to ever wonder why would you ever choose that name or think it was a good name for a baby girl? But but Orpah, that's what's on Oprah Winfrey's birth certificate. But apparently, the family members had a tough time pronouncing that. Probably little kids because little kids have a tough time with names, right? So my guess is little squirts kind of came up with something sounded like Oprah. They did their best, but it didn't come out quite right, so it stuck, and her name was Oprah there you go. But the question is, why remain? I mean, why remain in Moab? Why not go home? Well, it it could be pride. I mean, you're going to be coming home to friends with your lives in tatters. And you're going to have to admit maybe that the choice to leave was wrong all along. (laughs) And showing up in Bethlehem with with two sons married to Moabite women. ha! How would that have gone down in the neighborhood? But isn't it true sometimes that it's it's just easier to continue the, the pain of the disobedience we find ourselves than to confess that we've screwed up big time and make it right? Haven't, haven't you and I been there? Am I the only only one? But We do something we know is wrong or stupid or wrong and stupid. And when we're called out about it when God does or whatever. We can. We can. We can confess. We can repent. We can ask for forgiveness and then get back on track. But isn't it kind of just a natural thing to do? To lie or deny it, or to or maybe do some more stupid and wrong stuff to try to cover the tracks. You, you make a mistake, maybe. You buy something on credit you don't have the money for. And then boom, a little bit of God's judgment befalls for handling your money poorly, your car breaks down. Well, you gotta get your car fixed because you gotta get to work. So you put that on credit too. Next thing you know, you can barely meet the minimum requirements on the credit card. And it's just a string of bad decisions, but it really all started with just one decision that led you down a path, and you never really realized that every step God's judgment was calling for you to repent, to confess it, to turn around. Every step seemed to make such perfect sense at the time. But, but now you're in over your head. I mean, at some point, God's hoping you and I will come to our senses but, you know, some of us just won't do that until we've got no place to look but up. So, so don't feel be alone, because Naomi's in the same boat. She hasn't gotten there yet. And it could be that she's thinking, okay, I've still got two sons. Maybe they can provide for us. We'll, we'll probably be fine, and we'll see in a minute how that, how that works out. Before we go there, I want to talk about the other Moabite woman named Ruth, the the book is named after her, so you might suspect that she's kind of a center of the action because this is not some crazy French film where the title character never shows up because that's (laughs) artsy. Despite Moabites' (laughs) despicable beginnings, despite Moabites' hatred of Israel, its actions against Israel, despite the prohibition of marrying Moabites or even having an association with them, we are going to see God move in some amazing ways in and through her, it's kind of a little bit like when Israel rejected Jesus and put him on a cross, and then God said, well, I guess I just can't I guess I guess just can't get the gospel out to the whole world. I guess it's all lost. No, he goes to the Gentiles, right? He goes to the scumballs, right, the non-Jews. And that's why you really look around, I don't know, look around. How many of us in this room are Messianic Jews, born Jews, have come to Christ? Now, we're all Moabites outsiders. We're Gentiles. We're Ruths. Former enemies of God that God has simply loved and grafted into the family. And what God did for us through Christ, we're going to see him do the same thing with Ruth. Uh, but not without a little more tragedy, because you're, you, you, want, you want more tragedy, right? Naomi has not hit rock bottom yet. It's coming. Ruth 5, 1-5. Five. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Best laid plans go bottom up. In the space of one verse, Naomi's world has come completely crashing down around her. She's left alone. She, a childless widow, how will she ever survive? No family, meant no food. Government-sponsored welfare did not exist in Moab, especially for Jews. Stranger in a strange land, an aging single woman of no significance, it's time to make another choice but it probably seemed like that choice was not really a choice at all. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set up in the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, So what does this tell us about what's going on? Yeah, see, while Naomi and her husband and family were, away. Apparently, the people back in Israel hit rock bottom. They repented. They turned back to God, and God has responded. He sends rains, and there's now food again. But there was no repentance for Elimelech, right? He's dead. No repentance for Malon or Chilean. They're all dead outside the land. They experienced the reality of God's judgment and have died. But Naomi lived through it. But she's lost everything. She's probably figured out by now like this snake, that she has no idea what she's doing. At this point, she decides she's got no choice but to go back and hope that God somehow magically, miraculously, can redeem something out of this mess. So she pulls up stakes and heads back home. Now, I want you to notice in the next few verses just how many times you hear the words go and return, or if you're from Kentucky, get. I don't think Naomi would have been a great evangelist. She tells her daughters-in-law six times to go back home because life is going to be really hard where we're going. She says this, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, my husband and two sons, and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Basically, you need husbands, go back home. That's where you're going to find them, back to your own folks. right? And then she kissed them which is a symbol in that culture of goodbye. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Some interesting stuff in that passage. She's basically saying, Look, you, you really do not know what you're doing. Things are, could go really bad. God has got me under his thumb right now. I feel the judgment of God on me. And there's no reason you need to endure what's coming because of what I've done. So she's beginning to kind of get that repentance idea down, that confession stuff. You need to go home, guys. You need to go home, get a husband, raise kids. I don't have a lot of perks. If you follow me and you believe in our God, you might be happy, you might not. You might have peace, you might not. It's gonna to be tough for you guys as Moabites in that land. You're gonna to have to give up everything you know. You're gonna have to die to everything you know. You're gonna put that all behind you to come with me. I can't promise you anything. You're gonna have a tough time fitting in. Incidentally, you know Christ did kind of the same thing? A guy comes up to him and says, Hey man, I'm gonna follow you anywhere. And if you or me were in the in the in the in the in the action, we'd say, Good, you know, Here's here's the here's the document, just sign on, join in, let's let's rally around. But here's what Jesus says: hmm. Well, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has no place to lay his head, which means, maybe, dude, you don't realize this. This could be a tough, cha- this could be a tough, tough travel. It's going to be difficult to follow me. And you know, when you look at the New Testament, I, I can show you just about as much information in the New Testament for how to thin out a crowd as how to grow it. I can show you lots of places where the invitation is to get up out of your seat and leave rather than get up at your seat and join in. Because the New Testament offers you a few perks. Yeah, God's forgiveness, acceptance, but it also has the real possibility of death and persecution and alienation from this world. Being one of God's people, being a Christian, can turn out to be a tough fight. Now, Naomi knows this, so she tells him, get get on home, it'll be better for you if you just stay put. Now, the question is, how do they respond? Because Orpah and Ruth, represent two different kinds of people. If you read the rest of the scripture, here's what you're going to find. Well, here's what you won't find. You never see the name of Orpah in scripture after this chapter. Gone. Disappears into pagan darkness. But, but Ruth, trivia question for you. Where do you see her name in the New Testament? I might know. Huh? Yeah. She shows up as in the, the genealogy of Christ. Right? She had a candy bar to show you. She ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. She is immortalized because of a decision she's about to make right here in this passage. See, see, Ruth and Orpah both have, you've already seen it, a really high opinion of Naomi. They probably have a pretty high opinion of Naomi's God. They they both want the blessings of being a part of Vigil's God, but one of them is going to balk at the commitment that Naomi has put on the table. Watch this. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. We already know what that means. I still leave the baby. I'm out of here. But Ruth clung to her. See, whenever there's talk of hardship or death to yourself or having complete faith in God, when when that reached the ears of of Orpah, Orpah said, excuse me, just a minute. Stop the presses. I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it correctly. Could you run that by me one more time? And she and she hears, yeah. If you come with me, I can't promise you anything. You may die, you may die a widow, you may die barren. And Orpah said, basically, no. I I think I'm out of here. I like you, Naomi. I like you a lot. I like your people. I love your belief. I love your God. But I'm not trusting that deeply. See, see, Orpah is kind of a picture of all the people who hear God's claims, who hear about Christ, and then walk away. You know, you know what Orpah actually means. It's a weird word. I I have no idea why you would ever name a kid this unless God just sort of prophetically made you name the kid that. Orpah is a body part. It is the nap of your neck, back of your neck. What it means is this, that you're turning your back on somebody. It's really a play on words. So you see verse 14, Orpah kissed her and then she orped them. She turned her back to Ruth and Naomi and went home. Now, maybe it's just because I'm a pastor, but I've, I have seen this play out so many times. Uh, Orpa is a picture of those who hear the truth and just walk away. There was a young gal who used to come to the church when we first started meeting here in the, uh, in the, in the theater. She would come every, uh, maybe once a month, twice a month, when we first started meeting here. She really seemed to like the church, she nodded at all the appropriate places, laughed at the goofy slides and jokes. Uh, she loved the music, liked the friendly atmosphere, uh, we were planning a baptism one time, and she came up to me after service and said, "Man, I think I, I think I really need to get baptized." Man, I was pumped. I was so excited because maybe she's accepted Christ, right? So Jackie and I planned a, a lunch with her over at uh, next, well, over here, one of the inns next door to us, at the church the next week. And so we talked about, you know, what baptism means, over all the essentials about, you know. We need a Savior because of sin, and Christ is the only one who died for us because he was the only one that was perfect, and so that's the only person that could that God would accept a substitute for, a substitute death for. Uh, and that baptism is really kind of a picture of what's going on inside, where our willingness to die to ourselves and live for Christ and make him king. And we got through that, and I was so excited. And she, she looked at me, and she said, oh, I don't believe any of this. And she walked away and never came back. But Jesus was pretty clear when he said, whoever loses his life will find it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. So, so the other Moabite lady was Ruth. And her name also has a clever little meaning. It's from the Hebrew word "ra," And it means to associate closely. It means literally best of friends. And Ruth, Ruth, Naomi, see that? She clung to her like she was her best friend. See, see the call to commitment and dying to oneself, that's, that's to God's people a pleasant thing, a welcome thing. That term cling, we see it used elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, remember when Peter and John were headed to the temple and, the, and, they, and they see this guy that's been lame from birth and they heal him? What's the guy do? It says that he, they're trying to walk to the temple, but this guy is clinging. He's holding on to him like he's never gonna, gonna let go. And that's how Christians respond to Christ, or to cling so closely that even the thought of going in another direction, even the thought of turning back is offensive. If you see this concept in verse 16. Bruce said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Reminds of what Peter was, was and Jesus were talking, and, and there are a lot of people who are hearing some hard things from Christ, and, and Christ sort of turned, and some of them were walking away, and Peter uh, is standing there, and God Jesus turns to him and says, well, you going to leave also? Are you heading out the door? I mean, it's okay if you do. I just want to know, are you, is that where you're headed? And Peter says this, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, meaning you and you alone have that. It was offensive to Peter that Jesus asked him that. If you're a child of God, the idea of turning back to your old way of life, is offensive. The idea of going back to Moab is detestable to you. The idea of sinning again is detestable because that's what a child of God is. He or she is a root, clinging desperately seeing yourselves as best friends. That's why the New Testament I don't think takes a lot of stock in anyone's claim to be a Christian. It's not some claim. It's not some name on a roster. It's not some name on a church Role—it's not having been baptized. It's not church attendance. You—you look at lives. You look at lives and how they play out. Because people who claim to be Christians but really aren't—they don't have—they don't have too much trouble kissing Jesus goodbye. They can respect him. They can even like him. They might even love some things about him, but they will not cling to him and follow him exclusively. Or, but I think like Naomi. I think she might have even loved her to a certain extent. She's not going to follow her and her God exclusively no matter what. But Ruth claims, and even the thought of going back is utterly detestable. And look at what her definition of devotion is in verse 16. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. Meaning, hey, if it's lean-to, if it's a tent, if it's some temporary dwelling, if it's, if it's out under the stars, if it means suffering and alienation, I'm willing to go there. I'm, I'm going, and I'm all in, no matter what. From this moment on, I consider myself not a Moabite any longer. I'm no longer swaying in my allegiance to any Moabite gods. I've seen enough of your God in action, just being with you to know I want him. So your people, not just your people, they're, they're my people. Your God is not just your God. He's my God. I'm completely turning my back on my past. And when the day comes when I die, I want to die. I want to be buried there. I'm committing this for the rest of my life. And even beyond death, because see, in, those, in that culture, where you were buried had everything to do with your afterlife. It was a significant factor. So basically, I'm going to follow my God for all of my life. I'm going to die a member of the people of God. I'm going to, be, I'm going to count on him to basically take care of me in the afterlife. I'm not going back to my country. I'm not going to, be, going to go back there ever. I'm not going to be buried there. So don't take my bones back to my family. I read a story about a young girl, uh, a foreign exchange student. Uh, she came to the United States, and she ended up living with a family who actually went to a decent church. And she goes to the church, and she ends up accepting Christ. So when she goes back home after her foreign exchange period, the family had some ceremony that would require her to go to this temple and bow to these different gods in that particular Asian culture. Her family went forth first and they bowed, and then she went up, alone, and spit on the idols. She turned around, faced the entire village, and walked out. That girl knows something about the faith of Ruth. I hereby renounce every other God. So it's just weird to me that who is it that God chooses to show us, to reveal us with a story, the kind of faith that we ought to have? If we take in a little William Blake for you art history buffs, it's a widowed, Gentile, enemy of God's people, worshiper of despicable gods with disgusting practices who comes to God by faith and God accepts her as his own. And that's good news for us. Because if Ruth can be accepted, no one would be refused who comes to him. Ruth says this, may the Lord, she uses the personal name of God here. It's not some generic God, but she uses the word Yahweh. May God so do to me immoral, also, if anything but death parts me from you. May God condemn me if I ever turn back. She knows instinctively that perseverance is important. That when you believe in God, you believe in it to the death. I don't know if you remember the story, ladies, this might encourage you. Another great woman in scripture, Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Um, She received the spies who were sent from Israel to check out the the Jericho city and see what was going on there. She received them. Here's what she said, interesting. She, She sees them and she goes, I know that the Lord your God is God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. When judgment comes, which it surely will, Will you save me and my family? They said, okay, but we, we want a sign that you're not just jerking us around. We want a sign that, that proves that you're you're with us, that you believe in our God, and you're turning your back on your gods. We need to have a sign that when judgment comes, you've not just given us the runaround. Because what you got to do, you got to take a red cord or, st- or a stroke or something and hang it outside your window as a testimony that you're with us. Public confession of declaration to, to, to that fact. Why do you think they demanded a red rope? Well, it wasn't too long ago that they had come out of Egypt. And how was Israel saved out of Egypt? Red blood on the doorpost. These guys ask for the same thing. You you have to take something that represents blood and then trust our word that will become, you'll be spared. You know what Rahab does as soon as they leave? She grabs the red cord, hangs out the window, right there on the spot. She turns her back on her old life, turns toward her new God, Jehovah, and her attitude is this. I don't care if everybody sees it. If it means I die, but I'm waiting for these guys to come and rescue me, I'll die. But I'm signing on full force with these guys and this God. Incidentally, you might be interested to know that Rahab also shows up in the genealogy of Christ. And when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. If you've got a study Bible, you might look that verse up because you'll see a little cross-reference. Acts twenty-one fourteen, because this verse contains nearly the identical passage that we see an apostle Paul is uh, talking about with his friends going back to Jerusalem and preaching there. And they said, man, if you go back there, you're going to die. You're going to get killed. They're going to kill you for sure. You cannot go back there. And Paul said this, I am not only ready to suffer, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing that he could not be persuaded any longer, that he was determined, it says this, they ceased trying to talk him out of it. And said, let the Lord's will be done. That's kind of what Naomi saw in Ruth. Man, it's It's useless. It's going to be feckless to try to talk her out of this. I see that she is absolutely persuaded. I'm not going to try to talk her out of it anymore. So, so folks, do you see why the book of Ruth, this first chapter, is so important? A Gentile convert to God. She gives us a clear picture of what it means to actually follow Christ. It's a bold faith that turns from a life we had and turns to. It's a faith that will not give up, will not go back. And it's committed to death. See, Orpas in the world may have a high opinion of God, of Jesus, but they're never really all in. And they bail when things get uncomfy. Orpah is only willing to commit on her terms. If legend is true, Orpah is a lot like this Germanic warring tribe I heard about that all comes to Christ, including their leader. So they take the leader down to baptize all, all of his crew. And when he gets baptized, he shoots his right arm out of the water. So it wouldn't go under the water. He wanted to continue to use that arm to bring death and destruction. He wanted the rest of them to be baptized, but he wanted to be able to use that arm. So the legend has that the rest of his troops all were baptized the same way, with one arm sticking out of them. Folks, that is not Christianity. Christianity is all in, total commitment, a total dying to yourself and what you were without Christ, and a total faith in Jesus as your Christ and Lord, From this point on until death. And Ruth is a beautiful illustration of that picture. But the story's not done. We're only getting started, and amazing things are afoot. So don't miss out the next six weeks. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for these stories of real people and real times. Thanks for giving us some context. Uh, We see ourselves in them so easily because we're real people. We struggle with belief. We struggle with being sticking to the course. We struggle with not being swayed back to the old ways. We all got our sins that we hang on to, that come up cropping when we lose face time with you. Thank you for forgiving us, thank you for loving us. We pray that as we go through this book, Lord, you would speak to us, you would move in us, you would give us a commitment, maybe we walked in here without. Convince us that you love us, that you have our, our best in store in your heart, that you only wish us good. I pray all this in Christ's name.